0: pastor here at Christ the King. If you're a visitor or a guest, welcome. We're glad that you're here, that you're here with us as we come to God's Word. And as in a little bit, we'll dine around his table. If you're a guest, welcome. Uh, If I haven't met you already, I would love to meet you after the service. So um, please find me. I'd love to introduce myself formally. Uh, Welcome. If you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're trying to find it in your Bible, it's in the New Testament after the Gospels. Just start flipping through. If you make it to Romans, you haven't gone far enough. If you hit Philippians or Colossians, you've gone a little too far. Come on back. Um, But we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, We are starting a new series in the book of Ephesians that is going to take us into the new year. We'll finish it probably sometime in I think I think we have it scheduled for February, maybe. So uh, we're going to go a little bit. Uh, we're going to plot along a little bit and go through this wonderful book. Um, and since this is the first sermon on this book, it's important for us to understand what's going on, why Paul wrote this book. Paul is the author of of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul. He wrote this book probably near the end of his life, uh, to this church that he knew, this church that found itself in this city, a very thoroughly secular city. It was very pagan. There were lots of things pulling at their religious attention, desiring their hearts and affections. There were lots of things to pull at the church. But that wasn't the only difficulty that the church was facing. You see, the church at Ephesus was not only in a thoroughly secular city, but it was thoroughly diverse. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now, we say that, and, you know, if you've been in the church, if you've read the Bible, you hear Jews and Gentiles, and we probably don't think much of it. We just skim right past it, because pretty much all the New Testament churches, it seems like, have a, have a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And, and when we skim over it, we actually forget how big of a deal this was, that Jews and Gentiles would be coexisting existing, living together. This was a huge deal. Because these two people groups were people that were in complete opposition for generations. Not just for a few years, but for generations. That when they interacted with one another, at best, they ignored each other, but at their worst, they despised and hated each other. And now they're called to live together. Do you think that might cause a little bit of tension? I mean, all the history and the heritage and all the differences that they're bringing to bear, and they're coming together now, and they're supposed to live as one united church. Do you think that might cause a little bit of difficulty? There there might be a little bit of uh, discussions over preferences and what should be done and what shouldn't be done. I mean, uh, of course there would be. They have hated one another, and now they're being called to live together. To be united together as God's church. And that's what Ephesians is about. What what is it to be the church of Christ? How is it that we are to live with one another? With all of our histories, with all of our past, with all of our diversity, with all of the different ideas and baggage that we bring to bear. How is it that we are to live together? How are we supposed to be God's people, united under his love? Well, that's actually where Ephesians begins, and that's where we're going to begin this morning, with the love of God. Because it is out of God's love that he calls us to be his church. And so let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, some of you know that I went to uh, Lander University. Uh, It's a small college in a small little town called Greenwood, South Carolina. I always have to emphasize the Greenwood Because everyone's heard of Greenville, but very few of you and very few people actually in South Carolina have heard of Greenwood, South Carolina. It's this tiny, tiny little town. In fact, uh, I thought I misheard my coach. I played baseball there. I thought I misheard my coach when he told me where it was. I remember he called me up and said, I'm the coach at Lander University. I'd love for you to come and look at our school. Um, It's in Greenwood, and so we got off the phone and and this was pre-internet days So I had to look it up in an atlas. Do y'all remember these? (laughs) Okay, so kids those these are books with maps like we couldn't go online right like Greenwood didn't have a home page So I'd go on I go and I open up this atlas and I'm looking I find South Carolina and and I can't find Greenwood Anywhere, but but there's Greenville, so I'm thinking man. This is gonna be a great place to go to school Right, Greenville, it's cool, it's, you know, it's kind of growing, it's near Atlanta, it's near Charlotte. Well, uh, needless to say, I was a little disappointed when I arrived in Greenwood, South Carolina. Greenwood, when I showed up in 97 as a freshman, was a population of less than 20,000 people. Now, that might not be a big deal to some of y'all, because maybe some of you grew up in small towns of less than 20,000 people, and, and there's something something of a purity and of a beauty to a small town. But remember where I was coming from. I was coming from Canada, <laughs> in a suburb of Toronto, which is not a small town, right? Toronto is the largest city in the country of Canada, and it's very metropolitan, it's very eclectic. There's lots of different ethnicities and languages that are spoken, and I grew up in a suburb of that city, and now I'm moving to Greenwood, South Carolina, this small little town that's an old mill town, but the mills have long gone. I was literally a foreign man living in a foreign land. (laughs) Greenwood, it it, it was quite the experience. It was very shocking for me. The language was different. They said it was English, but I can guarantee you it wasn't the Queen's English, right? (laughs) I I, I promise you that there was a guy on my team that I didn't understand a word he said for the first week that I was there, right? The, The language was different. The food was different. I had never had barbecue before, believe it or not. Like in Canada, barbecue is the thing you cook the meat on. I didn't know what barbecue was, and so I asked, and someone thought I was an idiot. What is that? It's barbecue. I'd never had grits, and I'm still convinced fatback should not be eaten. But, but, you know, all these different things, food and language and weather, right? Like August in Greenwood, South Carolina, in our baseball uniforms, it's not like Canada, right? It was hot and brutal, and, and all these different things that I'm experiencing, it was vastly, vastly different than what I was used to. And it wasn't just me that was experiencing it. There were a whole host of guys that I was spending time with, guys from Tennessee and Florida, from Pennsylvania and Ohio and Canada. And we were all coming together into this weird and strange place. And to make matters even worse, we were all supposed to be friends and spend time with one another and to interact with one another. We had all these different differences, and yet there was one thing that united us, baseball baseball. We were the Lander University baseball team. And this was something that Coach hammered into us day after day after day, that we were no longer 30 young men who were simply functioning together, that were just kind of living around one another, but now we were one united group, that we had this new name, this new identity. We were no longer identified by our differences, where we came from, or how we spoke, or what we were accustomed to, we now were united around one thing. I was a Lander baseball player. Because I signed that letter of intent that said Lander at the top, and I wore that jersey that said Lander across my chest, everything had changed. Every one of us were united together around this new name, this new identity. And that's what Paul's pointing the church to in this passage. That despite all their differences, despite all their uniqueness, despite all the history and heritage that they are bringing to bear on this new organization of people, that they are united around one thing, a new name. Listen to what Paul says. He says it in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, I I know some of y'all want to focus on predestined, right? That word, it just kind of leaps out and everything else fades away, right? Like, let's talk about predestination and we'll get there. We'll get there. But notice what he says about you. Listen to the name that he gives over you. He says we were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling us is that if you are trusting in Christ, that you are a son or daughter of God, that you have been brought into his family, that that is the new name that is over you, child of God, that he's bringing us into this new relationship that it's not just me and God, but it's all of us, together as children, that we are being united together in this unique relationship with the Father. And it is a unique relationship. In the Old Testament, the word Father shows up 1,222 times. I looked at all of them. (laughs) 1,222 times, and you know how many times it speaks of God as Father? Less than 20. Less than 20 of the instances in which Father shows up in the Old Testament is it referring to God, and never is it speaking of a person calling God their Father. Never once in the Old Testament do we have an Old Testament believer calling God my father or our father. It's always God speaking of himself. I will be a father to the king. I will be a father to the nation of Israel. Never is it our father. It's this unique relationship because what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene is something radically different, something that no one has experienced before. Because how does Jesus refer to God, my Father? In fact, every single time that Jesus references God and speaks to God, he calls him my Father except for once. Do you all know where it is? On the cross, in his cry of dereliction, when he took all of our sin upon himself, that is the only time he does not call him Father. He calls him my God, my God. But every other time he says, my father. But the most astounding thing isn't that Jesus would call him father, right? The most astounding thing is that he invites us to do so. Do You remember what he said when he led us into the Lord's Prayer? When he taught us, he said, we call God our father. Our father. And in Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul says this. He says that you have received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit testifies, himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Who are we? We're the children of God. This is what he has made us to be, that we have this new name. We are sons and daughters. Collectively, we are saints. That's what Paul said in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus to the saints. Now, he's not just talking about the really spiritual people. He's not talking about the leaders. He's not talking about people who might be called Augustine and Teresa and Peter. He's talking about y'all. He's talking about you. You are a saint. That's what God calls you. That is your new name. That because we are saints, we are brought in to the household of God. God brings us in as his children, his adopted sons and daughters. So to be a child means that we are a saint. And to be a saint means that we have been given a new name. Child of God. Can and I have these really good friends, uh, Dave and Rachel. We've known them since any of us were married. And we've stayed in touch with them. Dave's actually a pastor in Charlotte now. And uh, he was going to be part of my insulation service a few months ago. I asked him to come and participate because he's a really good friend. And this is a special time for me. So um, I asked him to come, but, but Dave and Rachel couldn't come because instead of coming to my insulation service, they were in China. Um, and the reason they were in China was because they were adopting their son. See, about a year ago, actually, really, since they were children, both Dave and Rachel separately have wanted to adopt And about a year ago, they decided they were going to adopt this boy who has Down syndrome in China. And so they started praying and started asking the Lord to make this happen. And there they were. There they were. They were in China. And we we watched online. It was awesome. We watched online how they would post different pictures about their first times holding their new son and their first time getting to feed him, and their first time walking with him, and how at first he was a little hesitant, didn't want to sit with them, but then he started warming up and would sit in their lap, and they would embrace one another. One of the very first posts Rachel put on Facebook was was when uh, they signed the papers, and he was finally theirs. And after they signed the papers, one of the very first things they did was they gave him a new name, Benjamin David Baxter. They gave him a new name because he was now part of their family. He was now their son, Benjamin Baxter. You know what's amazing about that is I was talking to Dave just the other day, and he said that that now that, that Ben has become so accustomed to his name that when they call him by his old name, his Chinese name, he doesn't even hear it. He doesn't respond anymore to his old name. He only hears the name that was given by their father and his mother. The name that was given to him out of love. That's the only name he hears. And that's the only name we should hear. That God calls you a son or a daughter. He calls you a saint. Do you know what that means? It means that that old name is no longer what you are defined by. That old name is not who you are identified by, the name sinner and rebel, deceiver. That's not who you are anymore. That's not what God calls you. Now, now don't hear what I'm not saying. We still sin. That's why we confess our sin. But you are primarily identified as a saint. That's who you are. Saint Regina. That's who you are. St. Chris of (laughs) Botetot. That's who he is. St. Crawford of Cave Spring. That if your hope is in Christ this morning, that's what Jesus calls you. That's what God calls you. You are his son or daughter. You are a saint. Now, why would he give us this new name? Why would he put this new name over us? Why is it that Dave and Rachel adopted Ben? Why is it that he brought, they brought him into this family? It, it's not because he's cute, because, but, but he is. He is adorable. He's this pudgy little boy, and he's got this awesome belly, and it hangs out, and it's all, he's beautiful. He's wonderful, but it's not because he was cute, and it's not because he had, simply had a need, though he did. No, they, they brought him into their family for another reason, About a year ago, when they decided they were going to finally pursue this adoption, they had these t-shirts made, they were red, and they had a box on them, a square. And in the square, it said, love makes room. They were going to invite, they were going to bring this new son into their family that already had five children because love makes room. It was out of love for him that they brought him in. A love that began before they ever met him. A love that began before they had ever decided that they were going to adopt this particular one. There was a love that was beginning in them. And there's a love that began in the heart of God that he shows for you. But this love didn't start a year or two ago. This love actually began in all eternity past. That's what the passage tells us. That God has loved his children from all eternity with an eternal love. Look at verse 4. He chose us in him, that is Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love. Okay, we we do need to deal with those words, predestined and chose. Okay, I mean, we wouldn't be good reformed people if we just skimmed them by, right? We have to talk about them for a minute. Now, I want you to think, like, how do we often think about those words, we often probably think about them primarily in systematic theology categories, right? And systematic theology is good. It's a good thing, right? It, it's, it's important for us to have these categories because these categories actually help us to appropriate God's word in, in proper ways. Um, but, but it's not just systematic theology that we need to think of when we think of these words, we should, right? We need to hold on to the doctrine that before all time, God determined to shower his love upon you, that he chose to call you his son or daughter, and that there was nothing that you could do about that. That it's not because of anything in of yourself that God has done that. We need to hold on to that doctrine. It's an important doctrine. But often, how do we talk about this doctrine? I want you to think about the last time you had conversation about predestination and election, particularly with maybe someone who doesn't hold your view. <laughs> how did that go? <laughs> well, may- maybe it went something like this. Maybe it went like, um, you know, it was all cordial and fun and, you know, a little bit banter back and forth, you know, poking fun at one another, you know, theological humor. There's no humor like theological humor, right? I mean, that, that is, I mean, it is the height of humor. But, um, but maybe that's how it went, right? But then you realized after a little while, like, no one was moving, Like, you couldn't be moved off your position, they couldn't be moved off their position, so then, and I don't know, hypothetically, maybe you say something out of your superiority and belief that you have this incredible ability to understand these sorts of doctrine, you say something like, well, the reason you don't believe in election is because you have a very low view of man's depravity, and you're comfortable with limiting God's sovereignty. I'm not comfortable in doing that, but maybe you are. Right, and then what did they do, hypothetically? they, they didn't go, you're right. (laughs) I repent. I believe in election, right? They didn't say that. No, instead they come back with this, um, uh, arrogant rhetoric and they come back and they say something more like probably, uh, you know, something pejorative, like, well, you're just the frozen chosen, but we don't take that pejoratively. We actually wear it like a badge of honor, right? Like this is... You better believe I'm the frozen chosen, right? And then that gets them even more frustrated. And now you're getting angry and we're all getting frustrated and it's going back and forth a little bit like this over and over again, right? Just hypothetically, maybe this has happened. Until you finally decide we're just going to agree to disagree and we're going to walk away and we're going to be left very unsatisfied and very frustrated. And worst of all, we miss the complete reason for why Paul even brought this up in the first place. You see, Ephesians isn't systematic theology textbook. That's not what it is. It's a letter. It's correspondence between friends. We're just reading their mail. That's what Ephesians is. And why did Paul bring up election and predestination, these wonderful doctrines, why did he bring it up? It wasn't to destroy the Arminians. It was to tell us about God's love. Hear it again in verse 4, in love he predestined us. In love he chose you before the foundations of the earth. It was out of God's love, out of God's desire not to leave us in our sin and not to leave us as orphans, not to leave us far from him. It was out of love that he chose you to be showered in grace and mercy, not because of anything that we did, but But before the foundations of the world began, before there was anything noteworthy about ourselves, God determined to love you. Before, Before we were even created, when we were simply a thought in the mind of God, he chose to shower love upon you. God's sovereign will for our salvation, for our life, it is birthed out of the heart of God itself. That's why Paul talks about predestination. That's why Paul talks about election. To talk about God's love. A love that spans all eternity. And you know why we need this? Or you know when we need to be reminded of this? When our faith wavers. And when it gets fickle and when it feels fleeting. Flannery O'Connor, the great writer said this about her own faith she said it rises and falls like the tides of an invisible sea does your faith feel like that sometimes mine does it feels so fickle it feels like one day one moment it is as strong as it can be and the next moment it feels so weak and it's not just day to day it sometimes changes minute by minute second by second right and I'm not even sure why that wavering that floundering and that flickering and and so it would be very easy for us to think well if my faith rises and falls like the sea then then maybe God's love does as well maybe his love for me it actually rises and falls with my faith that it is based off the strength of my faith that he would love you or me but that's not true. Friends, you see, though our faith may fickle, be fickle, and though it may flounder, God's love is constant and unchanging. It is constant and unchanging that he, he loved you before the world was even formed, and a little thing like our weak faith is not enough for him to stop showering love upon you, to call you his child, To show you his eternal love. See, this is what God has done. He has shown love from the very beginnings of time. He has brought about this love to give us this new name. And this love and this name that he gives to us, it prompts us now towards obedience. It calls for a response. That's what Paul says in verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless. That's why God chose us. Not just to shower love upon us and then leave us to ourselves, but actually to call us to something. That word holy, it means to be set apart, to be different from the world, to have this unique relationship with God. The the word blameless, it, it literally means without spot or blemish. And what Paul is saying is that this is why God has shown love to you. This is why he has given you a new name, so that we would live as different people, that we would live as set-apart people, holy and blameless. Now, in one sense, this is already true of us. This is something that God has already done to us. Did, Did you notice as we read all the different times it said in, in him, in Christ? In six verses, it says it four times. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it says it over 20 times. We're told that our relationship with Jesus is in him. It's in Christ. And this is actually a really important uh, theological truth, that we are in him. And so what this means is that what is true of Jesus is true of you. That what has occurred to Jesus now is credited to you. That's what it means to be in him. And so when Jesus says, or when we are called to live holy and blameless lives, it's because Jesus has already made us holy and blameless. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 3, right? That, That blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, there's that in language again, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What he's saying is that what is true of Jesus now, where he is, he is perfectly holy, he is perfectly blameless, he is in perfect relationship with the Father. What is occurring with Jesus now is true of you as well. That is amazing. That is amazing. That's why Jesus can look at you and call you a saint. That's what holy means. That's what saint means. It means holy ones. Because what is true of Jesus is now true of us. And so in one sense, it's already occurring. But in another sense, it's not just a declaration of who we are. It's an identity we're being called to live out of. See, we don't just say, well, we're holy and we're blameless, so now we can go do whatever we want. Right? Like, we've been declared this. Grace has come. Let's sin so that grace can abound. Right? Heavens, no. No, we're supposed to live into this new identity. It doesn't mean we're morally perfect. Right? The Bible is clear. We're still going to wrestle and struggle with our sin. But what it does mean is that Paul is presenting us with a vision. A vision of who we are, but also who we will be so that we will actually live today in light of who we will be that we will live in light of who we are, that we would turn away from sin and confess it to one another, that we would turn our eyes towards what is good and pure and shut them towards what is shameful, that we would actually live holy and blameless lives today. So what does this look like? Well, let, let me give you one example. Um, I want you to think maybe again about that uh, theological argument that you know, I hypothetically have had before. Um, Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not the uh, the dinner conversation around your table, right? Theological debate. Maybe you engage in other sorts of uh, dialogue. You know, stuff that's not quite as uh, divisive, like on don't know, politics, or a, uh, yeah, or child rearing. Yeah, like that. That's one we can all unite around, right? Like how to raise our kids, um, or or what it means to be the church, like. What are our preferences and the things that we like and the things that we don't like? And, and, um, and how is it that we're supposed to live in our current modern day? Like, what does that look like, right? Like, those are the conversations that we have, and, and sometimes those don't always go very well. And so, let me just give you an idea. If, if it means, if to be holy means to be different, to be set apart, then, then perhaps to be holy and blameless means in our rhetoric, in our discussion, in our arguing, that it means that sometimes we just need to be quiet. Maybe it means, because I would just imagine that oftentimes these arguments and these dialogues and these debates are less about the honor and glory of God and us being right. And even more than us just being right, it's about telling other people how they're wrong and we're right. And so maybe, maybe to be different, maybe to be set apart, maybe to be holy and blameless, it means that we're going to need to be quiet. We're going to need to listen. We're going to need to, to be quick to close our mouths and hear what the other person is saying seek to understand them and not just see them as an argument that needs to be destroyed but someone who's made in god's image whose opinion we should actually listen and consider maybe that's what it means to be holy and blameless i know that it means a lot of other things but maybe just that one that it means that we actually live as the saints that christ has called us to be That we live as men and women who have this new identity, this new name. You know, for uh, three years, I had a new name. I was a member of the Lander University baseball team. That was my new name. That was my new identity. That's part of who I was. But what was amazing was that it didn't simply mean that I associated with these 30 other guys that amongst all our differences, it, it didn't just mean that. It, it actually meant so much more, you see, because Coach, Coach had a bigger vision than just giving us a new name. He wanted to give us a vision for how it is that we are to live. And so he called it the Lander Way, and he instilled this in us, the Lander Way. It meant that when we were on the field, we sprinted on and off the field, and we ran out every ground ball, and we dove for every ball in the hole. And it meant that when we were in our classrooms, we we were supposed to sit in the front row and pay attention and do our homework. And it meant when we were in the cafeteria, we were supposed to conduct ourselves with dignity and honor and respect. The Lander way. It wasn't just about a new name, it was about how we lived in light of that name. And that's what Paul's calling us to in this passage. God doesn't just give us a name. He doesn't just shower love upon us that we would then walk away, but he he showers his love. He chooses you before the foundations of the earth. He calls you son and daughter and saint so that we would now live in obedience. You see, we have this new name so that we would live in light of that name, that we would take that name and we would wear it as a badge of honor. It would be a banner that would be mounted over our heads that we would take it with us wherever we go, child of God. A new name that points to the fact that God has loved you and he has shown love for you before the beginnings of time so that now we would be people who would live in light of that name, in light of that love, that we would live with obedience, holy and blameless because that's what he's made us for. Friends, let's pray. God, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the love that you have shown to us, and we ask now that you would shower it upon us again, that we would know it, that even as our faith rises and falls, that you would remind us that your love, Father, is constant and unchangeable, eternal and powerful. Help us, we pray, to turn towards you, and to live out of the name that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name, and God's people said together, amen.